Tarek, Ben, you guys, welcome. Let's start with Ben. What what's your week's been like since the since the crisis hit? Having done some international work, what I find most striking over the last few weeks is that the nurses, the physicians, the physiotherapists, all of the allied health, it's almost like they're experiencing trauma on a daily basis. Mm. Um, and many of them worked through SARS, and those that did really don't want to talk about it. De- yeah, defense mechanism or whatever? Yeah, exactly. They have no interest in discussing it. Um, and, and even though many of our lessons are, in fact, from the SARS epidemic, um, the, the physicians who lived it are just trying to forget it, you know, psychologically. And you're in, we were just talking about this before, off mic, but you're in nephrology and you haven't, you're, that's what you're doing still, right? Like you've been, you've been on call, you said like 20 days in a row or something, but. Yeah. So I do, I do uh, nephrology. That means uh, kidney medicine. So the majority of my patients are in the hospital um, okay. on, in the dialysis units. Typically a dialysis unit might mean 25 patients in a space where they're literally two or three feet away from each other. So really the social distancing is not possible. Um, Any of those patients in that unit who even coughs, of course, there's a high level of anxiety with all the other patients. You know, am I in this close proximity to other patients going to get infected if he coughs? Um, Of course, that anxiety increased this week because there's a um, nephrology dialysis nurse in Hamilton who was found to be COVID positive. So of course, many of the patients in that unit are now quite anxious. Um, that's in addition to a healthcare worker at the Jurovinsky um, oncology site in Hamilton who was also identified to be COVID positive. This was over a week ago. So, um, so there's no way. There's no way to even like theoretically redesign a dialysis unit to keep people six feet apart. Uh, well, there's a few tweaks that, that you can do. So, for example, there are isolation rooms. They're not negative pressure isolation rooms, which is the current recommendation for COVID-positive patients. But what can be done is um, if there's a – typically the way dialysis units work, there's a central unit, and then there's some satellite units that are typically off-site for lower-risk patients. And so we fill these satellite sites so that – the central site, which is where many of the isolated patients will be, um, is in one physical location separate from the satellite sites. Um, So that's one thing we can do. Now, that being said, I mean, the the symptoms of coronavirus are fairly ubiquitous. So it's it's hard to distinguish from flu or cold or whatever. Exactly. So, you, you know, you have someone who comes in with a cough, and we have to isolate them, assume that they might be coronavirus positive, and then wait several days. In the meantime, they have to be isolated from the rest of the unit. So that taxes already pretty tight resources. Um, so, ta- uh, so that's nephrology. What about the what about the ER, Tarek? You're in the you're in an ER, right? In the emergency right now is in what kind of feels like a bit of a quiescent period. Most people are starting this transition. Everybody was very worried uh, a few weeks ago. Most of the people who could defer their health concerns did. And right now, there's there seems to be a mistaken impression among some people that we, you know, the social distancing worked and everything is good and we can start returning to normal. The rhetoric in the American media isn't helping. Yeah, the rhetoric in the Canadian media is is actually pretty good on this one, but the rhetoric in the American media is obviously bleeding over and not helping. And so people are starting to get a little bit restless. They've been at home for two weeks. They want to do something. They want to get out. Totally understand that. But but uh, And so they're starting to come back to the emergency, and they're starting to come back for issues that really they shouldn't. Um, and when we talk to them, Right now, we tell our patients, listen, this place is dangerous to you. If you come in here without COVID, you're probably going to leave with COVID. So don't. Is that really your sense that if you come into the ER without it, you could leave with it? 
Yeah, I think that's that's what we're seeing everywhere else. Lots yeah. of places basically ended up making this mistake. You know, when you look at, at the countries that have gotten this under control, they're countries where people really listen to the ideas of self-quarantine, self-isolation. Instead, mm -hmm. what happens with our current system? Let's say, for example, you're worried, right? And in, in North America in general, uh, for a number of reasons, mostly medical legal and sort of customer relations based, if you're worried, that's the worst thing. And you come back because you're worried right to the hospital, right? So now you're worried well, and you're in the hospital, and the people around you, all it takes is one of them to not be worried well, to be COVID positive. And suddenly, boom, everybody in that room, in that wait room, or who contacts the people who are involved is gonna end up being positive, which is why we've tried our best to thin the wait room, to see people quickly, et cetera, et cetera. Now this worried well person is out there and inevitably with time, they're gonna end up with symptoms. For example, I saw a patient for the third or fourth time. I can pretty much guarantee, and this patient very, very appropriately was coming in because they, the, the patient had a significant amount of anxiety. So, and the patient re was responding to the panic that's showing up. Well, if this patient didn't have COVID on visit one, by visit four, especially being cohorted into areas because there's a risk, so they all get put into some uniform rooms, I mean, that patient will probably end up being sick. It's not in and of itself a big deal, but we, our hospitals, as they're set up currently in North America, are incubators for these kinds of diseases. They depend on very low societal loads of this type of infectious disease. And for people when they get these diseases to not present to the emergency. So when you have this level of infectivity, because COVID seems to be a little bit more infectious than, than other diseases, when you have this level of infectivity that's running through the population for its first time, then that you're, you're beating up against a system that wasn't really designed. And of course, in many cities, you're also running into shortages of personal protective equipment. And so personal protective equipment is being used beyond the specifications and directions that everybody was used to. And that also introduces sometimes some weird behaviors on the parts of the healthcare providers or other people. And of course, once that scarcity cycle starts, you're in trouble because once people feel the scarcity, they start hoarding. Once the hoarding happens, then there's more scarcity and, and the loop continues. There's still a lot of perceptions in the public that this is really a disease that is picked up by people who traveled recently or were in contact with people who traveled recently. And the reality is the, the coronavirus demographics have changed significantly. Um, it's now well recognized that um, at least in Quebec, 40 to 60% of the new coronavirus cases and um, about 50% in Ontario are community spread, meaning don't have these risk factors. Um, and because it's in the community, uh, the healthcare system has to assume that anyone who has a symptom of fever, shortness of breath, um, cough, could have COVID. And by definition, that means that the resources that are already taxed are even more taxed because someone who comes in with a urinary tract infection and fever, well, they have to be isolated because it could be COVID. Um, someone who has you know, a simple community acquired pneumonia or the seasonal flu, uh, not COVID has to be assumed they might have COVID. And then all of a sudden, um, there's even greater need for this personal protective equipment that uh, Dr. Lubani is referring to, um, and even greater use of, of the already tax resources. So, I mean, this is, um, uh, if you don't need to come to the eMERGE, <laughs> you definitely shouldn't be coming to the eMERGE. You know, that's not, that's not a, um, that's not the place to be avoiding COVID right now. In a way, the hospital's designed to uh, to be isolated from the outside, right? But then whatever goes on inside the hospital is where the disease can actually spread. Look, there, there's only so many strategies that you can use to sort of attack disease. And one of one of these strategies that that we can use really has to do with cohorting patients. Right? And when you have an intermediate stage like we have right now, cohorting patients is dangerous, dangerous stuff. So what does it mean? You have 10 people 
and five of them are infected and five of them aren't, but you don't know who's who, and so you have to put them all in the same room. That That's almost a corona factory, because they're going to come out 10 of them infected, despite best efforts, right? It's obviously a bit of an exaggeration. It doesn't quite work exactly like that. It's It'll be a lower number, but still the idea is that in two weeks, these cohorted units will be perfect because 10 out of 10 patients will be corona positive. But right now it's contributing to that spread. And that's why one of part of the message that we're delivering is look, don't come to the emergency. You don't need to be here. Not only that, this is probably one of the more dangerous places for you to be. So come really truly in the truest sense of the word emergency. I also wanted to talk about shortages. So I know, Tarek, I, th- I think you, I don't know, Ben, I think you're somehow involved in this too. But Tarek, you've got Glia, you've been, you've been on the CDC, uh, you know, making face shields, right? Um, but like, how are, what, what's your sense of like shortages that we're in, shortages that are coming, and how they can be addressed and to what extent a project like yours can help or, or you know, 3D printing infrastructure, decentralized manufacturing compared to trying to bump up centralized manufacturing or what? Like, yeah, what's your sense of the whole system? The, the problem is not a lack of equipment or resources uh, because literally we're pouring all the resources in our country into this right now. The problem is a culture of disposability that is almost, not quite, but almost immune to this massive cultural moment. In Gaza, where they have way fewer resources, they will never run out of gowns. Why not? Because their gowns are reusable. When they use them, they just take them, they wash them, and they're done. In Canada, we may well, many hospitals will run out of gowns because we have shifted to these disposable gowns. Respirators is another classic. You know, you hear the government of Ontario just bought millions of masks. Well, there aren't millions of doctors. So even if you add up doctors and nurses and everybody else, why don't you put reusable respirators on everybody? Even when some hospitals start these shortage protocols to reuse their masks, the the nurses and doctors panic because nobody ever told them that these things were reusable. And for years... So they don't have training on like, this is actually safe after it's washed. They they just think you have to throw it out or exactly, it's not exactly. medically safe. Yeah. Because for years they've been bombarded by the, the essentially corporations who have been forced to increase their profits through various mechanisms within society. And because they're trying to increase their profits, Reusable doesn't make you profits. I mean, a classic example, there's a a group that started making a bunch of face shields, got to a point where they could manufacture thousands per day. Fantastic. That was amazing. I think they probably did the same calculation everybody else did. A week and you're going to have the whole province covered and then what? And so they shifted to disposable face shields. Wow. But why? That happened like during this crisis? Yeah, in the past week. Wow. In the past week. So... You know, we're not really learning the lesson about disposability. A lot of people sort of, uh, right now also we're trying to deploy reusable respirators and the the backlash is massive to the idea of reusable respirators from everybody involved. You know, oh, it's scary. People aren't used to it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The administrative uh, people will say- A respirator like, oh, is distinct safe. from a ventilator or a ventilator- Yeah, yeah. yeah it, let's use the term respirator as- anything that covers the mouth and nose okay. um, and you breathe through, that's the, the people might call them a face mask, but you know, a face shield okay. is also a kind of face mask. Okay. Uh, the I face see. shield is the piece of plastic, clear plastic that comes in front of the, the healthcare worker's face. Um, and so the respirator is the thing you put on your nose and mouth and you breathe through it so that you don't collect any contaminants through the air. But there's, if you were to go up to Sault Ste. Marie, you could probably outfit all of Ontario and several other provinces with just the masks they have there that are unused, by the way. Um, so we don't really have a shortage of respirators. We have a shortage of disposable respirators. We don't have a shortage of gowns. We have a shortage of disposable gowns. We don't have a shortage of stuff. We have a shortage of disposable stuff. What about um, what about the ventilator issue? Like, 
I know it's an issue in the states. Um, I know in China they they ha- they did have to kind of increase their manufacturing capacity for ventilators really fast. Yeah, but is that an issue here? Yeah, ben, did you want- I can touch on that a little bit. So the there is quite a lot of concern um, in the way that ICUs are organized. So typically, what what's been happening over the last couple of weeks. In, in our hospital and my understanding in a couple other hospitals as well is that um, there's part of the ICU or in fact the entire ICU will be designated as a COVID zone where patients who are highly, highly, highly suspected to be COVID positive before a test or have been confirmed to be COVID positive are placed in a designated location that's physically separate from um, COVID negative patients. The problem is the volume of COVID positive or COVID suspected patients is sufficiently high that there needs to be a additional location for non-COVID patients. And so part of that means that um, uh, non-essential surgeries have been cancelled and areas where these patients would often recover are now being used as uh, makeshift ICUs for non-COVID positive patients. Um, Also, there uh, are a lot of discussions amongst the ICU staff about um, triage. And what I mean by triage is what happens if we run out of ventilators? Who's going to get one? Yeah, so, that's the Italy. That's like the Italy. So many stories from Italy about that, right? Where yeah, exactly. Giving ventilators over people over 65 and, and just yeah. brutal decisions like that. But I mean, I've, I've seen on the ground a little bit of a shift with this because Um, there's frequently patients who are in an ICU on a ventilator that be for ethical reasons, um, can't be taken off the ventilator, but it's well known that they, um, will never be able to survive off a ventilator. And this may be sort of a person in their nineties who, um, could have been on a ventilator for six months. And so what you're seeing on the ground is that um, the staff are being a lot more active and uh, engaged in having more conversations with the family members to not, not to quote, free up the respirator. I don't want to be crude like this, but literally to have those conversations that they might not have been as aggressive to do so in the past. Um, likewise, in the emergency room, when the intensive care unit physicians are being consulted, knowing the tsunami of cases that are going to come, it means that a lot of the conversations about, you know, maybe we will try a trial of um, putting your 95-year-old, um, you know, loved one onto a ventilator, uh, even though the likelihood of success is exceptionally low, now rather than having the conversation framed that way, it'll be framed in the sense of "I'm sorry, this intervention will not be offered." Um, so there's there's that shift as well. Um, likewise, on the floors in the wards in the hospital, what's happening is um, um, unfortunately we've we've had to. Um, not allow visitors in the hospital anymore. Uh, and I think there's probably more than one reason for that. One reason is, of course, infection control and recognizing that because COVID is a community-based disease where people are known to be able to be asymptomatic but still spread the disease, knowing that um, there is the potential that visitors could either infect patients or become infected by patients. And so uh, that is strategically makes sense to do that and limit the number of people coming through. The other reason is that we, uh, some hospitals have reported that the personal protective equipment was being stolen. Um, Probably, possibly by healthcare workers. Uh, One can understand this, uh, wanting to make sure that families are protected and and, uh, probably taking an extra mask or two home uh, is probably not, uh, one probably doesn't perceive this as a huge crime, but when there's massive shortages. But if everybody um, does it, yeah. Yeah, and if everyone does it, every visitor does it, you you can see what happens, right? 
Tarek, you were saying also that I, I remember talking again off uh, mic that it, ventilators isn't necessarily the like the same way you were saying that it's not equipment so much as disposable equipment. In this case, it's not exactly ventilators so much as ICU spaces with all the implications of nurses and physicians and so on, right? Yeah, the ventilators is a really nice problem to latch onto because people who are from outside the system can quickly ramp it up. So for example, um, I don't know, I, I think in Canada, Ford is now getting into the business of ventilators or lots of these people are getting recruited to build ventilators. And frankly, they want to build ventilators. Everybody wants to help. And these corporations, to them, it's not at all internally inconsistent to both, uh, I think I'm allowed to swear, to both fuck over their employees with by denying them unpaid leave and at the same time say we're going to help society by manufacturing a massive amount of ventilators. Similarly, when, when you really look at the problem, uh, how many, we're talking now about ICU nurses who are accustomed to one, maybe two ICU patients at a time, now covering potentially between eight and 10, or people being called in from other places. I, I don't know what level it'll get to, and I hope, I really do, I hope that when we listen to this in another two years, we say, you know what, we panicked, we overreacted. That's a good. That's a good outcome in a case like this. You always want to. Yeah, and they always say like, if we do everything right and everything works the way it's supposed to, that's exactly what it's going to exactly. look like. It's going to Ex- look like we overreacted. Exactly. That's and I mean, ultimately, the problem is that you always have the naysayers. No matter what you do, you didn't react enough. You overreacted. Well, I'd rather the naysayers be saying that I overreacted. Yeah, but, absolutely. Yeah, but having said that, you know, we we've been systematically defunding departments and hospitals and healthcare for years and years and years, we've been telling them that you have no budget, that one of the things that you must cut is long-term commitments to personnel. For example, in our hospital, it doesn't cost more to have a disposable gown than it costs to have a reusable gown. All told, the costs are the same. But you don't have an employee with a pension at the end of it because when you're cleaning gowns, you have to have somebody clean the gowns instead of just garbage. Yes, yeah. And to them, this idea of gigifying your employees so that they come as subcontractors of some company that's abusing them is fine. And one of the things that's happened as a result is now we find ourselves in a situation where there's been degradation at every level in the hospital. Our janitors, for example, uh, obviously that's not the terminology we use internally, but I think it's a terminology most people understand, the cleaning staff. They are, they are, they have also been systematically depleted. They've been taken from people who could have a career for 20 or 30 years to people who are hired and worked until they, they are basically dead or dying and then released. Right. And so now guess who the true front line is? You know, I, yeah. used, I remember, I remember having a conversation and saying to one, one of the people who works in the emergency, it's like, you know, you are the one who's going to save us. Everything about, if you want to use the term neoliberalism, is we have any redundancy, anytime you have a doctor that might be like resting for five minutes instead of treating someone at that exact moment or, or a cleaning staff who's not, you know, who might be walking between one hallway and another um, that should be that and that might take six minutes instead of five, all of those are potential cuts, potential savings, so that you create a system where there's no redundancy and there's no backup and there's no and and that means no inefficiency on the one hand. And on the other hand, the minute there's an emergency, that means there's actually no capacity to deal with something that's up over and above your projection of a normal situation, which you which you are cutting based on the assumption that everything is just gonna stay exactly the way it is right now. Yeah, I I mean, absolutely. Like, look, any pandemic has these three pillars of response, basically. You know, you can think of it as one of the pillars that it rides on is the ability to diagnose and test people in a timely fashion. One of the pillars that it rides on is the ability to protect the workers while they're doing the work. And then the last pillar is the ability to treat the patients as they need treatment. And in Canada, actually, 
I, I think we can really say that only small bits of these pillars are gone, you know, yeah. but they've been uh -huh. systematically degraded. But this isn't, I mean, Ben and I have, have seen Gaza, like, we're not going to look at the Canadian context and say, woe is me. I mean, this place is a very yeah. lucky, very rich, very privileged place. Sure. And all of us recognize that. But, but I think I think you touch on a few important things there, though, like the 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 fact that there is no vaccine for this. A vaccine is likely a year away. A year at best, probably, like if we're lucky. Exactly. I mean, you're, you're talking a year away for vaccines. The treatments we have really are not trial tested. Um, yeah. You have, you know, Donald Trump is suggesting that uh, hydroxychloroquine is a wonder drug, but it really hasn't been shown to be that in any trial. Uh, the remdesivir is currently... Yeah, what's going on with that? There, there's a lot of that on the internet. It would be probably good if you guys would talk a little bit about that. Like, this is a, this is a treatment Look, for this malaria. Is, this, is a, this is a killer disease, and people are willing to do essentially anything to try to work on it. And so, so they throw these drugs that maybe might have maybe worked at SARS. That's, that's actually one of the strategies. Okay. But remdesivir, that's not what's happening here. Remdesivir isn't being trialed because it worked somewhere else. It failed in SARS. Remdesivir is being trialed because a company has it on the shelf and hasn't been able to figure out what to do with it. And so they tried it with SARS and it failed. They tried it in a test tube and had some theoretical success with it for coronavirus. So now they're putting it out there. And guess what? If it was working, we'd probably already know about it because it's been used widely in the Chinese context. So right. probably, it I mean, to be to be fair, it does it does have some uh, it does decrease viral load um, in vitro, meaning outside, like in a test tube, it does have some inhibitory activity against the virus. But you're right. I mean, it, the, the clinical trials that are ongoing in the U.S. and in Italy, I believe, and in China, they're they're not completed yet. So for us to stay, for, I, we can't say it works. We can't say it doesn't work. I don't think we can give any recommendation at all. And, and you know, similar evidence for Plaquenil, or the other name is hydroxychloroquine. There's essentially a study that combined it with a very commonly prescribed antibiotic and showed that the viral loads in a very small subset of patients decreased. But as far as clinical outcomes, like did less patients die? Did less patients go to the ICU? We really don't know. Um, and at, at this point, um, there's not really any medication that we can make any recommendation for, right? It's, it's uh, everything's being studied. Everything's a question mark. But then I also think when it comes to remdesivir, you know, we're, we're talking about a drug where you're right, like the reason why it's out there is because in the test tube, it works. Yeah. But having said that, it worked in the test tube on SARS 2004, like the original SARS. So I, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. And, and then when the data really concluded at the end of it, there was essentially no, no utility. And I think the early data, at least that I've seen, it doesn't say that, no, don't use it, but it says that probably this is going to end up in the same direction. So it's there. What I think we can say here is we know the magic bullet for this, and it ain't a single drug. Yeah, the magic you're bullet for right. this. Yeah, Wait, what's like, the magic? What's the magic bullet? I forget who it was who said everybody want to have muscles and nobody want to lift them heavy ass weights. It's a good fucking public health system. That's what right. we need. Social distancing. That's what we need. Personal yeah. pain on a societal level. That's what we need, and that's the thing nobody wants to hear. I remember I had this one classmate, I, just going to say this quick story. I had this one classmate who was top of our class. Another guy from the class underneath us comes up to him. He's like, what's your secret? He says, I study for 10 hours a day. He's like, no, 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 your secret. He's like, that's the secret. I study for 10 hours a day. You do that, you'll be top of the class too. Here it is. Yeah. We know the secret. Yeah. Social distancing and fucking quarantine. Yeah. Just do it. I'm going to present to you my understanding and you can tell me if, if, I, if I get it. So we're social distancing for long enough that the virus runs its course. Does it have to get through a certain percentage of the population, i.e. like the herd immunity that uh, Boris Johnson was talking about? And we're just trying to make sure that that takes so long that by the end of it, uh, the system is never strained and we don't have the most vulnerable people dying from it when they don't have to. I, I look at it a little differently. So I, I think of the social distancing strategies 
as essentially all people trying to flatten the curve so that two things happen. First of all, yes, less people are getting infected, but more importantly, there's a more prolonged but lower level of demand on the healthcare system, which is actually more likely to be met, right? So Okay, but so like in terms of the so there's this curve, right? And yeah. and in terms of like the area under the curve, to use uh, to be a bit mm-hmm. mathematical about it, the area under the curve is the same, i.e. the area under the curve is the number of people that get it from beginning to end. And that is the same, right? A flatter curve means uh, the same number of people get it, but over a longer period of time. So that that would be true if you make the assumption that there's no treatment or vaccine that comes in the short term. So for example, if you drag that curve out by six months, there's a, there will be no vaccine in six months, but there'll be a the lot weather. of promising. We, the weather, the weather no, could help, no, right? No, 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 no absolutely chance. not. Absolutely not. Okay. That's, that's one of the most common misconceptions about this is that it resembles these seasonal patterns. There is no okay. evidence of that with SARS. 2004 there's there's really no indication that that's going to be the case here so no the weather is not going to help us but what could happen what could happen is that some of these preliminary vaccines as they're being trialed might be so promising that it's worth giving them to the highest risk people uh, right off the bat so you wouldn't go and give a trial vaccine to somebody who's young and healthy and in their prime but you might give it to somebody who's a little bit older and might die if they get the disease so I think, and the other thing as well is, this is like any marathon, where the longer it takes to get there, the better we get at treating it, and the better we get at isolating patients. So, so we it could. So, what we might be doing is waiting for a vaccine. In other words, no, that that's not the only part of it. That's one small. Okay. That's one small part of it. By the time a real vaccine shows up this will probably be over. And what it'll prevent is less the current wave of deaths and injuries, and rather it'll prevent the next wave, the wave two, wave three. It'll allow you to be on a beach in Mexico in 2022 rather than in 2020. So I I think when it comes to, to something like that, what we're really trying to do is to transition it so that everybody is able to get the care that they need, whether they're COVID or non-COVID, because right now there's for example, I saw some patients, uh, I saw a patient who had a respiratory problem called COPD, and this patient couldn't get the care that, that they needed because we didn't want to admit them to the hospital because we didn't really have the resources to do that. What about the Korea model for getting out of the house? Yeah, I mean, that's actually a good, so Korea had a lot of preparation in advance. And so um, very, very different response from Canada. So while in Canada, the the provinces and municipalities have closed colleges, schools, uh, bars, restaurants, uh, you know, really, uh, really closed down any any significant groups of people in Korea, the schools have continued to run, but they were very well prepared. So in advance, they produced um uh, dividers for all their students. They taught them how to use masks. Uh, They created the classroom in such a way that social distancing, but also barrier dividers were provided. Um, And well in advance of the, um, the, the coronavirus really growing in Korea, they had already stockpiled significant amount of, uh, of personal protective equipment well in advance, fully anticipating uh, that this was going to happen. So, um, you know, that that was a very different... So meaning they're just better at, like, at day-to-day social distancing and keeping things running than we are. But where does testing, like, what about, what about the fact that they're testing everybody and they're able to do that? Are we going to be able to do that? Are we going to get there here? So we're slowly getting there. Um, I mean, in my, in my hospital in Toronto, we would test someone and it would take five days initially to get the result back. There was only one test center in downtown Toronto. So what that meant is that um, for certain populations, you would test them. You, one of two things would happen. They would be admitted to, if they were admitted to hospital, then they basically needed to be isolated in a physical location separate from other patients, which is obviously not easy to find in a, in a hospital that can sometimes be full and has limited spaces like this 
and they have to be in that isolated location until the result is back, which means for five days you're using a, a room for someone who could potentially be uh, found negative and then move to an area which is which is not isolated and could be with other patients, which is you know far more plentiful in the hospital. Um, that timing has come down. So there's now three test centers in the in the Toronto area. Uh, and so the timing for the COVID test has gone from about five days to under two days. You can see that has a huge impact, but there's still, um, I mean, my friends in Thunder Bay, for example, it's taking them over a week to get the test results back, which means that if they're starting to increase the number of tests they're doing, it means that that's going to tax already precious resources in the hospital during that time frame when someone who is or isn't COVID uh, positive is, is using precious resources in the hospital so that that's yeah Tarek to keep this theme of shortages and the system like what do you think the barriers are to getting to a South Korea level of testing here I guess what you would need to arrive to that point is a time machine that that strategy that strategy is more or less over we can't redirect enough resources to do that and reconfigure society well enough to do that because fun, one of the fundamentals in Korea is that they very rapidly redeployed their industry for the benefit of, of the country. They didn't nationalize it as such, but really it's nationalization by almost it's any al- other. Yeah, it's always been though. Like that's people, people don't know that about Korea, but the way that the state and the major corporations coordinate in Korea is totally not the model of capitalism that people in in North America or or even Europe would understand. So, right, it does right. it does make sense in yeah. terms of their e- economic model. Right, and and they were able to to transition and pivot so fast exactly for that reason. They're testing. They tested more each day for quite a while than we had tested all together. And everybody wants to test. I mean, if you could test everybody, things would be different. That's why in Korea restaurants are open and people are out there chilling. Um, so but, that's not going to happen for us. No, I mean, not yet. Not yet. It's going to it's going to take some time because the, the thing is, they were able to maintain a low burden of disease. Really, Korea would have been an essentially a miracle story if not for patient number 31. You know, she was a super spreader who basically knew that she was sick and went out and and went to a buffet and went to a party or I don't know something. You're saying we cannot achieve that because our society and our economy does not have that capacity no i don't think we're configured that way and also those strategies depend on low burdens of disease for the most part right so what they're doing is which we've already passed probably we've already passed that probably yeah like who are you going to chase down now you're going to test all of london who are you going to test are you going to test everybody and make sure they have a negative and then put a little sticker on them that they're negative on such and such a date. There are strategies. That's kind of what I was hoping. I guess I was hoping like you could go to the corner store and get a test, you know, like, yeah, yeah. there are, there are a similar system has been set up. So there are now COVID assessment centers throughout most of, uh, most of Ontario. Now what this means is that a patient who is concerned, they may have COVID um, can go to a, testing center, get tested, they agree to go home and stay home um, under under some form of isolation until the result comes back. Um, so, I mean, there have been hundreds and, and probably thousands of people who've been tested in these centers over the last couple of weeks. But um, what you're testing, what you're suggesting rather, as far as widespread testing of everyone, I don't think there's even the possibility of having the resources to do that. In, in Korea, you can literally go and ask for a test for any reason with no symptoms and get tested. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's just not where we're at right now, which means that we can't catch the burden of disease that is circulating out there that's either asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. Like for example, it would be really ideal if I got tested every week so that I know I'm not spreading it in the yeah. hospital. But we can't do that. That's not, that's not even imaginable yeah. at the moment. Maybe someday, but not at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean someday <laughs> like someday presumably someday this will all be passed like the timeline seems to me to be important like when the next healthcare crisis hits us befalls us we're going to have an awful lot of covid swabs for it 
and and that's generally how lots of this we'll be ready for the previous crisis <laughs> well that's that's very often the way that it goes right like i mean had this been a 9-11 style attack we'd all been ready but because it was covid we're not and i think a big part of of this problem is that we can't just be reactive. I mean, the whole thing about disaster planning is that you have to be proactive, simulate, think. Yeah. We all know the warriors among us, right? Just put them in charge of the the disaster planning committee and let them worry all they want and try to figure it out. Or prevention. I mean, I was watching a, one of your colleagues, Dr. Michael Greger. I, I, I was watching a lecture he gave about pandemics. It was like at least 10 years old. He was talking about SARS and bird flu. And he was mainly talking about how the agricultural, agricultural system and also kind of encroachment on natural habitats makes us vulnerable. So he was just pointing out like historically, the common cold comes from horses, the smallpox comes from camels, the measles come from cows, mm. rinderpest, um, you know, all these flus generally come from birds, and sometimes from pigs, like it's always the domestic animals, um, the sharing back and forth. It's been a factor in history, right? Jared Diamond's uh, Guns, Germs and Steel, where he kind of right. like interprets hi- human history in terms of like the way that diseases are passed back and forth. Um from animals to from domestic animals to humans. So he was he was basically like we need to we need to change our our relationship with animals and and with uh, the agricultural system uh, in order to prevent these pandemics. So you know hopefully it's not just a matter of disaster preparedness, but we could also think about the systems that are generative of pandemics. I, I agree. Although I must admit the uh, the sophistication of the system that's well, the systems that are being used to to fight COVID argue that it's a it has to be a multi prong approach, right? I mean, you're yeah. at this point we what you're referring to is really uh, the the border and air travel regulations that have got a lot of press. That's really a national move, but internally within a country, it has minimal to no effect on spread, right? And to, unless you have those municipal provincial measures of closing down local businesses, uh, closing down the churches and the mosques, um, and then the individual measures, which are you know encouraging hand washing, physical social distance between people, uh, not touching face, these sorts of things. So um, I, I think yes, uh, as far as we we will almost certainly see another coronavirus. This is this is not going to be the this isn't the first. It's not going to be the last. Hopefully, we'll be better prepared next time. But um, I I wonder. We're already seeing the president of the United States suggesting that by Easter, things will be opened up and ready for business in the United States. And there's no doubt that these different levels of social distancing, whether it's on the national, the provincial, or the individual level. If, if USA is literally going to be open for business, it's inevitable they won't even be done through their first wave and, and they'll see another precipitous rise in that first wave and have multiple more waves, right? Um, I think what's most rational is that the national boundaries, uh, the national, uh, you know, the borders being closed, air travel internationally being closed, those are going to be probably the last measures that are opened up. Um, Every country is in a different stage. Well, I mean, you have uh, different countries in different stages of controlling this pandemic. And invariably, if the United States is still having a dramatic increase in the number of cases, while Canada's are decreasing, the last thing we want to do is open our border, right? Um, even though the U.S. ostensibly was, and, and somewhat controversially, was the one country we were last to continue to allow um, international air travel with. Um, yeah, which me, which yeah, like when when Trudeau announced that, I thought this is literally makes everything else pointless. Like if you stay open to the U.S., yeah, then you might as well just stay open to everybody because there's no difference. One hundred percent. I keep interrupting myself in the sense of for this wave, what we're talking about is not necessarily that we're expecting many, many, many people to get it. Is that not a necessary condition of getting over this wave? This wave will probably consist of a lot of people getting it, uh, whether we want it or not. 
which unfortunately translates into a lot of sick people and a lot of dead people. But it, what doesn't have to happen is that we don't have to put ourselves in a position where this happens all at once. So let's say if there are to be 10,000 deaths from this, I think what's bothering people is that they think they're at the end of history. And so this shouldn't happen. They look at the Spanish flu and they think to themselves, well, why, why were they able to, uh, why was it, why is it that a hundred and something years later, we're still subject to the same thing? And really the answer is because the same factors are at play and they involve things like pre-planning, like spending well, like social support. If we want for these sorts of pandemics and mini pandemics not to happen again, if we want, if we want the pandemic responses to be better and not to be so severe, then we have to create better, more verdant societies, societies in which people can stay home when they're sick, societies in which people don't have to worry about uh, what's going to happen to their mortgage and so on, just because they're unwell. People who go in sick mm. are causing problems. And we see it even now. You know, Doctors in Canada don't get paid generally if, if they're sick unless they have certain kinds of yeah because doctors are actually um in canada treated as like small businesses basically like you 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 are self-employed to yourself yeah 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 that's right that's right you're not like you're not like a public and those are the hardest things and so we probably have a moment we probably actually do have a moment right now in which we might be able to push through a lot of very progressive economic reforms but the question is whether in a hundred years those progressive reforms will live. Yeah, after the Spanish flu and things like it, you ended up with the New Deal and then the New Deal eroded over time. And here we are. And we'll probably end up with another New Deal and then that'll erode over time because very often we count our victories as permanent and that's just not the way to do it. If we do make the kinds of reforms of like, say, having a public health system in the US and making it possible for people to have like all of those wise things like uh, employment insurance and uh, welfare, and maybe even a basic income for people to potentially be able to stay home and not work even. The, the other part of it is that these solutions to this particular problem are broad spectrum solutions to multiple problems. And so yeah. I don't think that it makes sense for us to look at this and say, how can we improve the pandemic situation? I think what makes sense is to ask, what are how, how far down the tree can we go? How far into the roots can we go so that we address issues that, that deal with this and other problems? For example, if you switch at our hospital from disposable gowns to reusable gowns, how much of the environment is going to be saved? How much are we going to be yeah. able to accomplish? Um, that's And that's huge. That's huge because we have a, a looming environmental problem. And ironically, the environment has been well served by this pandemic. We shouldn't lose those gains. We shouldn't lose yeah, those Yeah, well, gains. air travel, like you mentioned the beach in Mexico, and I kind of flinched because I was like, actually, we probably shouldn't be like all dreaming of going to the beach in Mexico. Maybe we should be, you know, dreaming of enjoying like, things that are a little bit closer that don't involve air travel that don't involve cruise ships and yeah yeah absolutely or cruise ships is such a classic example of a recurring disaster environmentally economically uh, health-wise it's not like you know the reason why cruise ships ignored covid is because they're used to ignoring this stuff they're like okay so a bunch of people are sick who cares they didn't they weren't too bothered by it and and to listen to how cruise ships are able to, to do this stuff or any analysis, to read any analyses of it, it's obvious that this is a problem that needs systematic addressing. And if you address cruise ships, you address fundamental rights of workers, you address fundamental codes of conduct between countries, you address all of these things all at once. So I, I think, yes, we're all thinking about this now and we should take this moment, you know, Naomi Klein sort of shock doctrine-esque moment to try to push through as many progressive reforms as we can that empower people, that empower communities, that make people healthier, that make people uh, more, more in charge of their own lives. However, if we lose track of the fact that these issues are deeper than just the pandemic, then when the pandemic is gone, we're gonna lose our focus, lose our momentum, 
and lose our gains. We'll be in worse shape potentially than we were when it started because there is a lot of damage that's being done now and a lot of sneaky things that uh, that the billionaires are doing, right? Like the, the U.S. Uh, rescue bill has been appalling. It's basically like trillions of dollars to corporations that are going to be able to probably buy the rest of America <laughs> with this cash that they're getting from the federal bank. And then, you know, people are going to come outside and discover that every business, every building, everything is now owned by these corporations that got bailout cash. What did any of us think would happen in this situation? There is no mechanism, there's no realistic mechanism for distributing finances to normal people. There's no good way to do that. And there's no well, there was way. there was there was there was a welfare system. There wasn't employment insurance. There was like I understand that there were. I'm not talking about it in past tense. I didn't say there weren't. I said there aren't. There aren't good systems for that distribution now. And so of course, this is actually if you were the government, if you were sitting at the head of the American state right now, you would probably be compelled to do very nearly the exact same thing. Because the levers that you can pull are limited. And those levers, the levers that that actually help real people, have been systematically pulled out and removed from the floor over years and decades. And yeah, and and that's that's the very hard work of some very smart people, our opponents, those who are against the people. They're not stupid. They're very smart, yeah. and they are not sure. Although they they do look a little bit stupid now, like when 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 they have a system that can't get anything done, that like it is a little bit embarrassing. That's because you think their goal is to do stuff for us, right? But their goal is right. to make money, and they've succeeded at that goal. But their goal is also to fool us into thinking they're there for us. It's it's ever so temporary. Like who remembered two thousand and eight a year ago? I think Moscow Mitch is out for all of us. I think he has our best interest in mind. Okay, yeah. With that, that's an exception, though, Ben. I mean, you know, that's, uh, you know, we, we do have to give credit. It's true. We have to give credit where credit is due. All right, guys, that was great. Um, you know, let's check in again. In a couple of-